right, everyone, I want to get us started to maximize our time with the speaker. Good morning, everyone. I hope you all can hear me. Um, thank you so much for being here today. Uh, all of you look like regulars to me, and so you know that we have a long tradition here at St. John's, being the Church of the Presidents and February being President's Month, by devoting three Sundays in February to a given presidency. And when Rob and I met a few months ago to talk about which president to feature this year, we immediately agreed on Calvin Coolidge uh, for a number of reasons. One, he served 100 years ago, and he is relatively little known and little appreciated. I would say underappreciated, and I'm sure you'll come to the same conclusion after you hear from Matt today and his colleagues. Um, so we're to focus today on Silent Cal, President Coolidge. Uh, I'm so pleased to welcome Matt Denhart. I want to thank Matt not just for being here and giving what I know is going to be a terrific talk, but also for helping to organize the series. It is he who got the following speakers for us um, for the series, so thank you very much, Matt. During his time at the Foundation, Matt led the development of the Coolidge Scholarship, which I'm sure he'll talk to you a little bit about, and several other initiatives aimed at sharing the lessons and values of President Coolidge with the nation. Before joining the Coolidge Foundation, Matt served as a research fellow at the George W. Bush Institute, and he was also the administrative director of the Center for College Affordability and Productivity. He's the author of numerous policy studies and articles on a wide variety of topics, including education, labor, and tax policy, and he's the author of a book called America's Advantage, a handbook on immigration and economic growth. He is a summa cum laude Phi Beta Kappa graduate of Ohio University with degrees in political science and economics. And with that, please join me in welcoming Matt Denhart. Well, thank you, Clark. I'm delighted to be here. Uh, every four years, C-SPAN surveys American historians and asks them to rank our presidents. The latest ranking came out in 2021, so the next one will be here before too long. But reporting from 2021, the good news for us Coolidge fans is that Coolidge moved up. <laughs> the bad news, only two spots. And he's still only 24th place out of the 44 presidents who have served prior to President Biden. Well, 24 out of 44, that isn't too bad, right? Just outside the top half, I guess it's also not great, somewhere in that murky middle. But I guess such a ranking isn't totally surprising. After all, Coolidge indeed is obscure to most Americans. Most Americans would probably say, eh, he probably wasn't great, maybe he wasn't terrible. Some would say maybe he was terrible. But most would just say, I just don't know much about him. At the Coolidge Foundation, uh, we run a major scholarship program, as Clark was kind to mention, and uh, we offer a full ride for four years to uh, college, and the students can use this scholarship at any college they choose to go to and get into. And as you might guess, we get thousands of top candidates from all across the country seeking this sort of golden ticket. But when we survey the top 100 candidates, a group we call the, the Coolidge Senators, they tell us that uh, something like 90% of them say that, that they had a knowledge of Coolidge somewhere on a scale of one to three out of 10 before they applied to our scholarship. And these aren't just any old high school students. These would be the, sort of the, the, the average of this group, say of their ACT score, just for example, is about a 35 out of 36. 
So if that group hasn't learned much about Coolidge by the time they come to the end of their high school years, you can bet the most Americans just don't know much about Coolidge. What they do know about Coolidge is often a caricature. Maybe you've heard of Silent Cow, the president who did not speak. Perhaps you've heard the story of Vice President Coolidge who went to a dinner party. That's a big job for a vice president. <laughs> Coolidge was shy. He didn't particularly like them, but he did his duty. But anyway, this one evening, there was a lady seated next to him and said, Mr. Vice President, I've made a bet with a friend that tonight I can get you to say more than two words. Well, the dinner goes on, and at the end, Coolidge replied, you lose. <laughs> at least a few have heard that joke. Well, being here at St. John's, I'm reminded of another story. It didn't necessarily take place here at St. John's, probably at Coolidge's own parish, First Congregational Church, which he and his wife, Grace Coolidge, attended. But one morning on a Sunday, maybe it was rainy like today, I don't know, but Coolidge went without Grace, somewhat unusual. Grace was somewhat more reverent in her attendance than Calvin, though Calvin uh, faith was important to him as well. But in any, in any case, when Coolidge returned back to the White House, Grace asked him how it was, how was the service? And Calvin said, well, it was fine. And Grace asked what the reverend had to say in his sermon. And Coolidge said, well, it was about sin. Grace, trying to get more words out of her very own husband, said, and what did he have to say about sin? He was against it. <laughs> Well, Coolidge indeed was an introvert, and he was not one for idle chit-chat. He was shy from his youth, and it was something that he had to overcome. But he wasn't handicapped by the shyness. Indeed, he averaged more than two presidential press conferences per week, and he gave many, many speeches. He wrote those speeches himself. If you go back and look at them, I think you'll be very impressed. They're not written by ghostwriters, but really by the president. He put much effort into them. Uh, one time when he was having a portrait painted, uh, he, he pointed to his shelves with his speeches on them, and he said to his portrait painter, our cult Cortato, the Italian, that those, waving, saying that those were his masterpieces. But his silence was also a tactic, and he employed it tactically. He advised, towards the end of his term, the incoming Herbert Hoover, that when receiving visitors, a president will see people for three or four hours a day. And Coolidge said nine-tenths of them, 90%, want something they ought not have. If you keep dead still, they'll run down in three or four minutes. If you even cough or smile, they'll start up all over again. <laughs> Let's just say Hoover had a different conception of the presidency maybe than Calvin. But Coolidge is often charactered in another way or in other ways as well, as an accidental president, as a seat warmer between the Roosevelts, as a do-nothing, or maybe as a tool of big business. The extent to which commentators distort Coolidge is evident in the way they cite one of his most famous lines, the chief business of the American people is business. Many of you have probably heard that line. Coolidge's detractors seize on this statement which they often misquote, saying, the business of America is business, sort of mocking Coolidge as being unconcerned with anything beyond material success. This couldn't be further from the truth. 
What detractors fail to mention is that in that same speech delivered in 1925, actually to a group of newspaper editors, Coolidge said the chief ideal of the American people is idealism. The same language, a twin language. The chief business of the American people is business, and the chief ideal of the American people is idealism. He added that Americans are not, quote, absorbed by material motives, that there are many other things they want very much more. In that speech, he was saying that there are two purposes of a newspaper and how it was emblematic of America as a whole. The first is a business. Newspapers make money. They employ people. But they also have an idealistic end that is providing transparency, holding the government accountable, providing a forum for people to share their views and debate the issues of the day. In another speech, Coolidge acknowledged that we live in an age of science and abounding accumulation of material things. But he also said that the things of the spirit come first. Unless we cling to that, all of our material prosperity, overwhelming though it may appear, will turn to a barren scepter in our grasp. Beyond any one caricature, the more fundamental reason Coolidge is not ranked highly, probably, is that there's a great departure between how we think of presidential greatness, or maybe how the, the rankers, in any case, think of presidential greatness, and how Coolidge understood the role. Today, we lionize our presidents. For better or worse, they dominate our 24-hour, maybe it feels like 25-hour news cycle. <laughs> we admire those, often, who display dramatic leadership through crisis, such as war, or through pandemics, or things that test them, and they have to prove their mettle. Historians tend to rate highly those presidents who alter the nature of the presidency itself, those who wield the bully pul pulpit, who use the great power of the office, or who usher through dramatic legislation. Coolidge would agree that America was a great country, but this was because America's system of government was exceptional. It recognized the worth, dignity, and ingenuity of ordinary Americans, and it put in place institutions, crucially, that, that facilitated self-government and guarded against tyranny. In Coolidge's view, and many as well, the success of America shouldn't depend on a superhero in the White House. In fact, Coolidge believed restraint from a president what was, was what was really crucial. It is a great advantage to a president and a major source of safety to the country, Coolidge said, for him to know that he is not a great man. He went on to say, Bluntly, when a man begins to feel that he is the only one who can lead in this republic, he is guilty of treason to the spirit of our institutions. Coolidge knew what the framers knew, that there exist many problems the government cannot solve, and there is much an executive should not attempt. It is much more important to kill bad bills than to pass good ones, Coolidge once advised his father. And political leaders must remain humble as well. Men do not make laws, Coolidge told his colleagues in the Massachusetts State Senate. They do but discover them. The principles that Coolidge championed, limited government, fiscal responsibility, federalism, respect for enterprise, respect for religious faith, the importance of individuals, well, these are all things many of us so long to see revived today. At the Coolidge Foundation, we think Coolidge indeed is much misunderstood, as Clark mentioned, and indeed underappreciated. 
So we worked to share his legacy and values with Americans across the country. That's why I'm especially grateful for this opportunity, Clark, and all of you here in the St. John's community to be here to share with you Coolidge today and next week and the week after. <laughs> next week, you'll hear from our trustee, Garland Tucker, a historian and retired businessman who's written on the 1924 election, and we're republishing uh, that edition. He'll have copies of it next week, and so you'll hear more about uh, the election, Coolidge, his opponent, John Davis, the major issues uh, in, in that famous election. And then to round out the series will be our chairman and Coolidge's biographer, best-selling biographer, Amity Schles. Well, since this is the first of three, I'll give a sort of a broad overview, I thought, of Coolidge's life and presidency. And hopefully I've already made some progress towards, towards making you think he belongs somewhere a little higher than at least 24, but that'll be up to you to decide. Well, Coolidge was born July 4, 1872. He's the only president born on Independence Day. I don't need to tell uh, members of the president's church that there were three who died on July 4th, but Coolidge was the only one born on the 4th. He was born in a very remote hamlet called Plymouth Notch, Vermont. It's isolated today. That's where I work on a daily basis. And you can imagine how much more isolated it was when there were no reliable uh, roads and the train never even came to this small village. But it had a strong community, and it was a wonderful place, Coolidge believed, to grow up. It uh, was, was marked by the town meeting, a New England tradition that was alive and well, especially in Coolidge's day, as it is now. Coolidge accompanied his father. He was sort of a jack-of-all-trades in the village, sort of a superstar citizen. He served in many roles. He was constable. He was justice of the peace. He ran the general store. He was the tax collector. Uh, and he looked after neighbors. He eventually served in the state legislature as well. Coolidge learned so much, as we all do, from those formative years. He learned about enterprise and hard work. He learned about pitching in, helping your neighbors. And indeed, he learned about faith. In fact, the Coolidge family often hosted services in the winters when it was too cold to have them across the street in the village church. His childhood was not necessarily an easy one. His sister uh, died when he was 17, and before that, his mother died when he was only a young boy, 11 or 12. But he persisted, and he studied hard. He wasn't a great student. In fact, had you met Calvin Coolidge as a youngster in Plymouth, you would have thought, this, this youngster seems like an okay fella, but probably is not destined for the White House. I don't think anyone would have seen greatness out of Coolidge uh, in, in his primary school. If you look at his grade cards, he was an okay student, but he was worried he would fail math class and sometimes came close to doing so. He went off to school in the nearby uh, uh, Ludlow, Vermont, uh, at Black River Academy. He graduated in 1890. And as I mentioned, he, he was shy throughout his entire life. He spoke when he was young about having difficulty coming around the corner of the door to greet guests of his father in their home, and it took all of his courage to do so. But he found himself in different ways, and one of those was through organized speech and debate. He joined the debate team in high school, and by the time he graduated, he was invited to give the Grove Oration. Of course, his graduating class was only a dozen or fewer students, but to Calvin, this felt like a big accomplishment. He went on to Amherst College and uh, struggled there at the beginning as well. He often wrote home to his father of his homesickness, of his loneliness, wanting to come home, but again, persistence was a theme throughout his life. 
He stayed there and he found that studying government and economics were what he found most suited for him. He thought he might like to go to law school, but after discussions with his father and sort of true Coolidge uh, style, they, de they determined that law school was perhaps too expensive. Instead, he would study law, this sort of old-fashioned concept uh, that actually you can still do in some states, even in Vermont today. But he was in Massachusetts. He moved to Northampton, and he clerked with the firm called Hammond & Field, where during the day, he learned the law in a practical way, and at night, he self-studied to pass the bar. As a young professional, a young lawyer in town of Northampton is where he stayed. He, before too long, uh, had the good fortune to meet Grace Coolidge, who in many ways, Grace Goodhue, I should say at that time, in many ways was his foil and his opposite. As every bit uh, sort of dour and quiet and taciturn as Coolidge was, Grace was vivacious, she was beautiful, she was friends with everybody, she had jokes, and she uh, really brought out the best in Calvin and helped to make up for some of those deficiencies. She was training in town as a teacher uh, of the deaf at the Clark School in Northampton. They met and before too long were married. Uh, Grace's mother, as I mentioned, Calvin in these days, you wouldn't have thought he was destined to become president. Uh, Mrs. Goodhue certainly would have agreed with that assessment. She tried to delay their marriage. She said that Grace had not yet learned to bake bread, so how could she possibly be married? <laughs> to which Calvin replied, we can buy bread. <laughs> they were married in Burlington, Vermont, where Grace grew up. She's the first uh, college-educated uh, first lady. She, she studied uh, before the Clark School at the University of Vermont was an active um, uh, in, in her sorority and, and just a wonderful lady. Ever the romantic, Calvin took her to uh, Canada for their honeymoon. It was to be two weeks, but they found after a week they had had a great time and had seen all the sights, and Calvin suggested maybe they should return home a week early. Grace didn't find really any reason to protest, uh, and, and Calvin said he was excited to take her back to Northampton to show her off. She knew that he was eager to get back to his first campaign for his first office. So he was often running in local politics, running for the school board. That's the one office that he didn't win. <laughs> Some people uh, said it was, well, it's because he didn't have any students in the school. And he said, well, I guess it will give me time. Well, he, he got off and running as a young lawyer. He built up his law business as a, as a country lawyer might, but he quickly entered politics, uh, supposing that being involved in politics would be good for his law business, and his law business would prepare him to contribute to his community. Today, we often hear about outsiders who will come in and shake up the system, and well, maybe that's necessary sometimes, but that wasn't Calvin's approach. He was much more cautious. He liked to be prepared, and prepare he did. He entered political life in a dramatic era when, as today, flamboyant postures struck by politicians drew votes and attention. But Coolidge, as I said, preferred to wait, work his way up from within, especially within the party. He started out in the first election that he did win as city solicitor, or party, city council, then on to city solicitor. There are a lot of them, I'll, I'll, I'll warn you. Then state representative. He came back and was mayor of Northampton. Then he was a state senator. Then he was president of the Massachusetts Senate. Then he was lieutenant governor and eventually became governor of the Bay State. Throughout all this, whether it was work in politics or work in his law practice, Coolidge eschewed marketing himself for promotion. Instead, as he told his college friend Dwight Morrow, he determined that he should do a good job so that others, whether they be employers 
or voters would give him a promotion. And they did. He came onto the national scene, really, beginning in 1919, when a dramatic event struck Boston. It was September of 1919. He was governor. And the Boston police strike uh, came in September. The immigrant vote had propelled him into office. Irish Americans had come out especially strongly for Coolidge. And the Republican Party counted on their votes in that fall's election, when Coolidge would be running for another term. But that fall, the Boston police, who were largely Irish Americans, walked out on strike. The conditions that they're under were terrible. Um, and there were many reasons uh, that, that, that they were demanding better wages, better conditions, more safety. Having voted for Coolidge, they doubtless must have expected some leniency from the governor. But with the police off the job, rioting ensued. The police approached Coolidge after some time about negotiating their return. But the governor noted that the police contract permitted no such strike. Just because the police didn't like the conditions in Boston did not mean that they could violate the law. Coolidge backed up his police commissioner in the firing of the strikers, knowing full well that the move might lose him the election in the coming fall. In fact, he wrote home to his father saying effectively, this I think will be it. This will not be popular, but I have to do what's right. I have to do what the law says. The labor leader of the day was Samuel Gompers, and he was involved. He too was trying to negotiate a return for the Boston police. Well, as I said, the situation was tense. Coolidge brought in the National Guard to restore order, and they did. But he would not give in on hiring the striking police. He wrote to Sam Gompers saying, there is no right to strike against the public safety by anybody, anywhere, anytime. What would happen to Coolidge? Again, he thought he'd, he would lose the, the coming election. In fact, it was quite the opposite. Woodrow Wilson, during the strike, uh, was, was, was traveling and, and was sort of noncommittal about his view. And, uh, but afterwards, uh, he telegrammed Coolidge, congratulations. It was an example where the states were showing the way for the entire country. Voters in Massachusetts rewarded Coolidge for his principal stand. He was reelected to another term, and this put him as a national figure on the national stage. In 1920, he would be nominated to join Warren Harding on the presidential ticket, Coolidge, of course, running for vice president. The national mood was strikingly similar to our own today. Debt was mounting. They had just emerged from war. Tensions were high. And Americans wanted a break, a return to normalcy. Well, as you all know, that return to normalcy uh, proved, proved uh, successful, and Coolidge and Harding uh, entered entered the White House. Well, Coolidge entered actually the Willard Hotel. That's where he lived. There was no vice presidential residence, and so the Coolidge's, uh, ever parsimonious, decided to live in the Willard Hotel. Coolidge, uh, as I said, he served the role of vice president well, he, uh, which means that he didn't do too much. <laughs> that served Coolidge OK. Though he did go and fulfilled his social obligations, those were a bit taxing, but he did them well. well Fate would have it that Coolidge would, uh, would, there would be another office in mind for Coolidge, not just vice president, but indeed president. It was 1923, the summer of 1923. The Teapot Dome scandal was beginning to emerge. President Harding that summer, back then the presidents went away in the summers to, to cooler climates, 
President Harding, of course, went west for Alaska, and on his way back in San Francisco, died suddenly. This was 100 years ago, August, August 3rd, 1923. Calvin and Grace were up in Vermont visiting his father. The sons were away for the summer, and uh, they were visiting Coolidge back in his, in his home in Plymouth. Well, it was the middle of the night when the word came. It came by telegram. In dramatic fashion, there was no telephone in Coolidge's home, and a messenger was dispatched from the nearby village, drove six miles in the, in the dark, and came just before midnight, knocked on the home of the Coolidge family, and gave the message to John Coolidge, Coolidge's father, that President Harding had died. What do you do when you're in the middle of Vermont, and the country does not have a president, and uh, there's no way to get news out? What do you do? Well, Coolidge, ever humble, did what made sense. He consulted the Constitution. He called the Attorney General to consult. He went across the road to the general store and roused the, the, the storekeeper. And they decided that Coolidge would take the oath of office that very night. So it was at 2.47 in the morning, standing in a lamp-lit living room of his family's home, that Calvin raised his right hand with the family Bible stand, uh, on, on the table, and his very father, a notary public with that great authority, administered the oath of office, making Calvin the 30th president of the United States. And after that, Calvin went back to bed. <laughs> the next morning he got up, he and Grace got up, they went and dressed, they went down and visited his mother's grave, he said a prayer, and they made their way to Washington. He later related that someone asked, uh, you know, what did you think? Departing Plymouth and heading to Washington, suddenly to become president under such dramatic circumstances, Calvin said, I think I can swing it. <laughs> well, he's come to office. He's filling out the rest of Harding's term. It's 1923. There will be another election the next year. The Teapot Dome scandal has engulfed had engulfed the Harding uh, administration. Many of those same cabinet members uh, were, were now part of the Coolidge administration. What to do? Coolidge thought he might like a term of his own, but things didn't necessarily look promising. There was a president now that people thought was a total accident, uh, that was quirky, somewhat odd, didn't fit in with the Washington chit-chat scene, and people thought, this guy will just be a seat warmer, and then we'll elect a real president in 1924. Well, Coolidge immediately proved in his own way that he was up to the task. He, uh, he, he appointed two special counsels, one Republican, one Democrat, to investigate the Teapot Dome scandal. And it led to uh, cleaning up the mess. The interior secretary was, was, was fired and eventually went to prison. And uh, trust was restored in Coolidge. He also, I think very strategically, and, and also based on principles, said that he would carry out the Harding administration's priorities from the 1920 uh, party platform to perfection. So he signaled immediately there wouldn't be some great departure in the policy priorities just because there was a new president. Well, he became, he became popular. Americans saw in Coolidge someone they thought they could trust. Uh, if he was a bit quiet, well, maybe that was something that was good for the country. 
1924, uh, things seemed to be going Coolidge's way. He had notched some, some, some victories, and, uh, and he looked likely. Uh, he was indeed nominated to be the candidate. But in this time, the tragedy struck for the Coolidges. They had two sons, Calvin Jr. and John Coolidge. And in the summer of 1924, just before the 4th of July, uh, Calvin Jr. was playing tennis on the White House tennis court. He was not wearing socks. And tragically, he developed a blister, uh, which developed quickly into blood poisoning. And within a few days, he died. As you can imagine, it impacted the first family and the president enormously. Uh, he, he wrote later that when Calvin Jr. died, the power and the glory of the presidency went with him. But again, persistence was important and it was really a defining trait of Coolidge's life. They retired that summer uh, for the balance of the summer to Plymouth Notch. That's where Calvin Jr. was laid to rest and, uh, and Coolidge led his campaign from there. Of course, campaigning in those days was different. And again, I'll, I'll leave the 1924 campaign story to Garland Tucker next week. Uh, but it proved a success. In fact, uh, Coolidge won an absolute majority in an election that was a three-way race. There's some murmur today that maybe we'll have a third-party candidate in our coming election uh, this year. And in 1924, they did. Uh, storming Bob LaFollette broke from the Republican Party uh, on, on the Progressive Party and ran against Coolidge who himself was running against the Democrat, John Davis. Coolidge didn't just win a plurality, but an absolute majority. Now, I want to talk just a have time, Clark, or am I? 25 minutes. Okay, so I'm going to spend maybe five minutes talking about, in Coolidge's term, uh, what he would have considered to be his biggest uh, success. And that relates to the budget and to tax policy. And others throughout our series will cover more of the presidency, and I'm happy to answer questions as well. But again, important to think about the historical context. Coolidge came to office following World War I. America was demobilizing. The government had grown dramatically uh, to execute the war. The income tax was new. In fact, uh, brand new in 1913 by way of the 16th Amendment. In 1913, a footnote, the top rate was 7% on the income tax. It was never supposed to go higher. Ha ha. <laughs> <laughs> If you add a seven in front of that seven, that's what it went to during World War I, all the way to 77%. Coolidge said, when I became president, it was perfectly apparent that the key by which the way could be open to national progress was constructive economy. Only by the use of that policy could the high rates of taxation, which were retarding our development and prosperity, be diminished, and the enormous burden of our public debt be reduced. Well, constructive economy to Coolidge meant that the government needed to tighten its belt. It needed to come back to normalcy. Again, normalcy meant pre-war. It meant not too much dramatic action from the federal government following the progressive era and lots of reform and lots of new spending. Through a disciplined and sustained effort, Coolidge managed to balance the budget every year that he was president. Really, this is remarkable. Today, we don't even really attempt to balance our budget. I saw that uh, George Will addressed this, this very lecture series not long ago, and he remarked that there's a vast agreement today that we should have a large and generous welfare state and not pay for it. Indeed, Republican or Democrat, Democrat during times of a booming economy or a recession, we routinely 
run deficits of billions or now even trillions of dollars a year. It takes great leadership and discipline to balance the budget. By the time Coolidge left office in 1929, the federal budget was smaller than it was when he came to office in 1923. What's more, the savings were such that by the time he returned home to Northampton, I should note, returned home to half of a duplex that he rented throughout his life. The savings were such that a third of the wartime debt, national debt, had been paid off. The debt went from $23 billion when he came in in 1923 to just under $17 billion in 1929. This helped solidify America as the world leader. Well, how did he do it? Well, one was certainly by leading by example. He himself showed great thrift, personally, and at the White House. In fact, he instructed the housekeeper, who he thought spent too much on the meals, that perhaps they should have fewer hams in the future. He fired that, another housekeeper, who he thought spent too much. And uh, the, the new one that he hired after a year, personally examining the social budget of the White House, wrote very fine improvement on her notes. As I said, throughout his life, he lived, he rented, he didn't even buy the house, he rented half of a duplex on a small residential street in Northampton, Massachusetts. When he and Grace returned home, they went back to that same house. It's hard to imagine a president these days returning to half of a duplex and it was hard to imagine in that era, too, a spoiler. <laughs> too many people came by, they eventually needed to move to a more private and more private place. But he also used vetoes strategically. In fact, he vetoed 50 times in his years in office. He pushed back firmly, strongly, against things that were popular, new spending or expanded spending. The major issues of the day uh, were agriculture. Many more Americans were farmers. Coolidge himself came from a farm. And there was uh, multiple efforts. Mary Hogan was the name of the act, uh, uh, passed twice by the Congress, twice vetoed by Coolidge, that would subsidize surplus crops. The veterans, having just won the war and sacrificed so much in World War I, were seeking a bonus. This was another major effort for an expanded bonus for the veterans. Coolidge himself uh, welcomed many of those same veterans home when they returned, uh, coming back into the ports at Boston when he was governor. And he had great sympathy for them and respected their contributions very, very highly. But he said that there was no benefit that could come from the entire country for a certain class. He said patriotism that is bought and paid for is not true patriotism. And even the veterans veto, or even the veterans bill, bonus, pardon me, bonus bill, he vetoed. Why did he care so much about the budget? Well, part of it, I think, was in those Vermont bones of his. Uh, he was thrifty to the core, and it was a, really a moral issue. He hated waste. He said wealth comes from industry and from the hard experience of human toil. To dissipate it in waste and extravagance is disloyal to humanity. He believed individuals had an obligation to use their resources wisely. He also knew that tax revenues for the government came from the earnings of American citizens. In his autobiography, he wrote, as I went about with my father, he collected taxes. I knew when taxes were laid, someone had to work to earn the money to pay them. He knew that every dollar that people paid in taxes was a dollar less they had to take care of themselves and their communities. He said, I quote, I want the people of America to be able to work more Less, or pardon me, to be able to work less for the government and more for themselves. I want them to have the rewards of their own industry. This 
is the chief meaning of freedom. In his 1925 inaugural, he said, I favor the policy of economy, not because I wish to save money, but because I wish to save people. Economy is idealism in its most practical form. Well, careful budgeting allowed for tax reduction, and tax reduction followed that humble outlook that people know how best to use their money. Coolidge, though he was unique in style, he knew how to be a successful politician. When lion cubs were given, how odd is that? Lion cubs were given as a gift to the White House from the mayor of Johannesburg. Coolidge didn't name them Pockets or, or another kind of cute animal name. He named one tax reduction and the other Budget Bureau. <laughs> he insisted that they be fed the same amount to demonstrate that even among twins, these are policy priorities that must be maintained in tandem. The lion cubs went on to the Smithsonian Zoo. He worked with his, uh, his Treasury Secretary, Andrew Mellon, to cut taxes. In fact, in the 1920s, again, the income tax was new. The 20s can be seen as an early experiment in tax reform. Uh, the supply siders, uh, you know, like to call it the Laffer curve, you could call it the Mellon curve, or what Mellon called it was scientific taxation. There were uh, three major tax cuts in the 1920s. The first one um, under uh, President Harding and two more under Coolidge, really led by Mellon. But again, the, uh, the theory was that by simplifying the tax code uh, and reducing rates, it would encourage enterprise and that you would get more revenue than simple arithmetic would suggest. And that's indeed what happened. Rates came down to a top rate of 25%, a rate even lower than President Reagan achieved. In fact, that's probably one reason uh, that President Reagan is known for having moved Coolidge's portrait into the cabinet room in the 1980s. And I should note, too, that after the Coolidge tax cuts, the rich, indeed, paid a greater share of the total federal taxes, uh, even with lower rates. The result of Coolidge budget and tax policy was a strong economy. Growth was 4% or more a year, a rate much higher than today in most years. Unemployment was low, always under 5%. But what stands out especially is the improvement in the quality of life for everyday Americans. At the beginning of the decade, indoor plumbing was an exception not the rule. By the end, the majority of households had electricity. They also had toilets. Electrification and the rise of radio and telephone improved life at home and at work. Americans got cars. Productivity gains in factories meant that workers could give up the traditional six-day-a-week grind and still make a good living. The 1920s gave America a gift. We now call it Saturday. I think my children, uh, they ask on Saturday morning, they're quite young, is this a home day or a school day? I think, well, we should probably be studying, but thanks to the 1920s, it's a home day. Coolidge's idea that a strong economy enabled by responsible and restrained budget and tax policy would grant Americans more freedom seems to have proved correct. Well, Coolidge famously chose, I'm going to wind up here quickly, but uh, famously chose not to run for re-election. He was enormously popular. And in the, in the summer of 1927, he and Grace were in the Black Hills of South Dakota. Mount Rushmore was being chiseled uh, that, that very summer uh, by Gutzen uh, Borglum, the, the sculptor. Coolidge dedicated that statue, but he himself decided that it was time for him to step away. There was much speculation. Uh, reporters were hounding him for an answer. 
he was, he was mum. Uh, the word is that he didn't even tell his, his wife, Grace, what his decision would be, but he called a press conference. He told reporters, if you come by, uh, then, then there may be some news today. He had a secretary write up on slips of paper a few words that just read, I do not choose for run, to run for president in 1928. He handed those slips out. The reporters couldn't believe it. <laughs> the language was somewhat odd. I do not choose to run. They thought perhaps he wants to be drafted or he'll change his mind or he's, he's delaying for time. None of that uh, pro proved to be the case. Coolidge himself believed it was time for a change in the office of president. Again, he believed that many could serve well. He retired. His term came to an end in March of 1929. As I said, he and Grace returned home to, to Northampton, Massachusetts at Massasoit Street. He lived a few years. He wrote a fabulous autobiography, the Coolidge Foundation. We've recently published a new edition. Uh, he served on the board of National Life Insurance Company. He wrote a syndicated column for a year, a daily syndicated column called Calvin Coolidge Says. You might see him as an early tweeter. <laughs> it had a 300-word maximum. He tragically died in 1933. He was only 60. It was unexpected. He had a heart attack at home alone. He was buried in Vermont in Plymouth Notch. You can visit today when you come and see the Coolidge Historic Site, and I invite all of you to come and visit us there. What you'll notice is the humility of the whole thing, the quietness, the serenity, and really just the sanctity and the respect for the institution of the president that he held. There's no pomp, no great monument. In fact, his grave is the same size as those beside him. When you look down the row, he's buried by five or six generations who came before him. The tallest grave, in fact, is that of his great-grandfather, not of the president. His wife, Grace, lived until 1957. The Coolidge Foundation was founded by his son, his surviving son, John Coolidge, in 1960. And again, we work to share his lesson and legacy with Americans. Where should he rank? Does he belong in the top 10? I don't know. Here at the, the, the Church of the Presidents, I know you perhaps don't want to show your cards too much. But I think a president who showed us how we can run our country with respect, who we can do it with humility, we can pay down the national debt while reducing taxes, deserves at the very least another look. Thank you. Happy to. Well, I'd like to ask you, what did Calvin Coolidge think about women's suffrage? Because I went to a talk about Woodrow Wilson, who died 100 years ago, 1924. Yep. And he, Woodrow Wilson was initially against it, and then because of the lobbying of Carrie Chapman Catt and other issues, plus Woodrow Wilson had five remarks, then he became a favorite. So what did, what did Coolidge think about women's suffrage? I'll answer uh, briefly as Coolidge He was in favor of it. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, he thought that uh, only good things would come from what he said, the womanhood of America uh, uh, participating in elections. And in fact, uh, Grace Coolidge, his wife, uh, cast a ballot for Calvin for vice president in the first election, the first presidential election that women voted in. Thank you.